Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I've been asked to uh, chair this session, which is on our boards in South Africa suitably staffed from an actuarial perspective to deal with SAM, which is Solvency Assessment and Management, in case you're not aware of that. So, um, my name is Paul Lewis, and I know I'm normally here standing talking about uh, CSI and shouting at you about how bad data is, but the re reason I'm not is because the data is extremely good at the moment. You're all doing very, very well. Um, thank you for sending all your data. Um, I'm also feeling a bit slightly underdressed compared to my steam panel. So you'll note I'm wearing corduroy. So corduroys are back in again, in case you weren't aware. Um, I'm, I'm busy watching reruns of Friends uh, with my daughters. And in the episode where Ross breaks up with Rachel, um, she is wearing cords and she looks really hot. <laughs> okay, so we have five panelists this afternoon. Um, three of them are, have an accounting background and two of them have an actual background. So those of you um, who know me well know that I'm, I'm really not a fan of, of long CVs, but I think it is quite important to give some background to who the people are, just so you know what perspective um, they are coming from. So they're not sitting in the order of my notes, so I need to move around a bit. I'll start at the far end. So we have Conrad Backerberg, who is an actuary, and he's been a managing director of an insurance and a reinsurance company and currently holds several positions as independent non-executive director of life and short-term companies. Then we've got David Bergman, who is an accountant. He is currently an independent non-executive director of two insurance companies, and he has held many previous positions as MD, FD, and non-executive director of financial service companies. Then we have uh, Desmond Smith, who is an actuary, who has been the managing director of an insurer and a reinsurer, and is now chairman of both those companies. And he also holds several company directorships, and he's the past president of ASA and the IAA. And then we have Nina, who is an accountant who works at Deloitte. Her specialities include sustainability reporting and assurance, and her clients include insurance companies and several large industrial companies. And last but not least, we have Curtis Dixon, who is an accountant. He is a partner at KPMG, where he is a financial service insurance sector leader, and his clients include several life, short-term, and reinsurance companies. Um, and I got quite long CVs from all of them, but Gerdes um, was my favorite. He sent me a short one, which was, Gerdes has been an audit in the industry for more than 20 years and has been able to observe governance structures of many insurers over the period. That's my favorite CV of all time, nice and short and sweet. <laughs> so we did... Um, send out six questions which we asked the panelists to prepare on and they are willing, they are able to answer all six questions but what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the questions in order and I've asked an individual to, to lead the discussion on that and then I, I will give people the opportunity to, to pitch in where necessary. So I'm going to start um, with Nina on, on question one. Um, so question one is, do you feel that the boards of which you are members attend or advise are fully prepared for the new challenges which Sam brings to the industry, and I'm holding thumbs that you didn't just prepare a yes or no answer. Right, good. So I won't cut this short then. Um, like, so the question is, do we think that boards are fully prepared? And I think we have to start with what fully prepared means. So um, I think for me, I'll first look at boards themselves. So in the, in the capacity as, as a consultant, I often do board effectiveness assessments, and through that 
we have a questionnaire that, went, that goes out to, to board members to respond. So over the last two to three years, we've included three questions for relevant companies around the, the training provided, the level of understanding, and the, feed, the report back on the, on the SAM project in their organization. And what I can, can report back on that is, is these are the questions with the biggest improvement over the last two years, consistently amongst people that I've surveyed. So, so I think board members themselves think that they are much better prepared than two years ago. But I also think that they, like there's also a little bit of SAM fatigue perhaps creeping in there. Um, I then from there move on to a, a little bit of law. So if we look at section 76 of the Companies Act, it asks, asks board members to act in good faith in the interest of the company, and then perhaps the most important here, with a degree of care and skill and diligence that may reasonably be expected of a person carrying out that duty. So, and a similar person with the same experience and general knowledge. So, so a colleague of me, me, mine always say, you, you almost get measured against your own stupid self in this situation. So you will be measured against what can reasonably be expected of you as a board member. Now, if you are a board member of a large insurer, I think there's a reasonable expectation, and, and the nomination committee of, 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 of large insurers obviously goes through a diligent process to select the right board members. But I think we have to acknowledge that all board members cannot have the same understanding. So fully understand, perhaps not, but do they understand to the extent that we can reasonably expect them to understand? I think we're making very good progress towards that. Okay. Um, then maybe from an actuarial perspective, Desmond, do you have anything additional or different to add on, on that question number one? Paul, yes. Uh, uh, Nina does our board effectiveness uh, review every second year, so um, you think we came out okay? <laughs> <laughs> I think Nina put a finger on, on it. Um, initially, as I understood it, and Ian, I might be wrong here, excuse me if I, I am, but the expectation was that all board members would have a fundamental understanding of what SAM is all about. Now, my issue with that was exactly what Nina said. We don't appoint all our board members to have that fundamental understanding. We appoint them for different reasons. I, the, the approach now, I think, is that collectively this board, the board should have a, a, a sufficient understanding. Um, and speaking on behalf of the two companies that I'm involved with, um, I think they do. We have, um, at Sunlam, for example, on a, every quarter, we have um, a report back to the audit committee and the risk committee on a SAM implementation progress report, which also goes through to the board. Um, all the required policies go through the relevant committees and, and end up with the board for approval. Uh, so a huge amount of work. We have a training session before each board, board meeting of an hour, an hour and a half. And uh, to a very large extent, uh, a lot of that training has gone into issues like SAM and, and, and TCF. Um, so, I, while, while we're not there yet, I, I would imagine, I think, as Nina has said, there's been a huge improvement and we do have sufficient capacity both at, at both companies, uh, for sufficient capacity for there to be a, 
a very good, thorough, fundamental understanding of what SAM's all about. So we've come a long way, I think. Okay. Then I'm going to um, ask David just to start us off on question two, which is what do you think the main issues are that are presenting the greatest challenges of the companies at which you are involved? In particular, which areas do board members require further education and discussion to finalize the understanding of the new concepts and changes in governance? Uh, thanks very much, Paul. I have to say at the outset that I can only talk for companies in which I have been involved, uh, as Paul has said. So please, uh, these may not be reflective of the industry, but uh, certainly these uh, are my observations. <clears throat> One of the first issues I think for companies is going to have to be a reconsideration of dividend payment policies. Um, once the ORSA exercise has been carried out, uh, it may well be that there just <clears throat> simply isn't sufficient capital to, uh, to distribute. And um, the result of that exercise may uh, well reflect that actually some additional capital has to be put into the uh, company concerned. Um, but I certainly think um, that this will be a real problem. <clears throat> In practice, I, I've been recently um, uh, involved in that sort of decision uh, where we've been faced with that um, also and uh, taken a decision actually not to distribute. Investment policies and strategy, um, I do think that these are going to have to be reviewed in a number of companies. Uh, issues such as liquidity, risk ratings, asset categories will s assume a new importance uh, because of the capital charges that can be uh, applied. And um, in establishing the uh, solvency capital requirement, these can be quite, uh, quite severe. Um, we all know that in the past, a number of insurance companies have benefited enormously from the buoyancy of uh, share, uh, share prices in the equity markets and uh, are certainly benefiting from the very low yields on the fixed interest securities. And, you know, the, if volatility uh, manifests itself and one keeps on hearing about uh, the U.S. increase, you know, the Fed increasing interest rates, this could have an impact. So uh, this sort of thing has to be looked at very, very carefully in the investment committees. Um, financial management, too, are going to have to take even a more strict approach to, to the way they manage their assets, in particular in future. Um, again, because capital charges which are applied against, say, debt balances for arrear premiums or reinsurance claims, uh, these can have a severe impact on the balance sheet. Um, yeah, so I think the, your financial managers or directors are going to have to have a very close look at this in, going forward. Um, on the human resource complement side, um, and again, one of the reasons that I was asked to sit here is uh, because I probably am involved in smaller insurance companies than the Suntums and the Sunlums of this world. Um, and so I think the introduction of SAM, uh, read with board notice 158, is going to introduce a lot of um, uh, uh, strains uh, because a lot of new disciplines uh, have to be incorporated 
dealing with the risk function, the internal audit function, <coughs> and, um, and, what and, and what is in entailed in all of that. I presume all of you are familiar with Board Notice 158, and it's very integral to uh, SAM. Um, and so the risk-based approach that, uh, that Board Notice 158 requires um, may suggest that additional skills are going to have to be brought into an organization either as permanent employees or on a consultancy basis. If it's on a consultancy basis, one just has to consider Directive 159A1. So, so all of these things need to be considered, and I, <clears throat> I wonder whether they might well have been fully uh, considered at this uh, early stage. Um, one has to remember Board Notice 158 uh, has actually been implemented, effective 1 April, so theoretically all of this should be in place already. Um, the risk appetite of certain insurers may have to be reappraised, particularly for low par uh, margin business, um, you know, particularly once those um, SCR exercises have been, have been carried out. And it may well be that certain insurers will have to drop certain lines of business. I think uh, budgets too might need to be reviewed. Um, you know, if shareholders, particularly enlisted companies, are looking for uh, certain returns on their investment, um, then it may well be that, that management have to look to cost-saving measures uh, to find out how they can actually maintain uh, their earnings in one way whilst having to respond to the dictates of, of uh, Board Notice 158. Um, similarly, and again, please, these are, these are actual observations I'm making, they're not hypothetical. Um, reinsurance or risk mitiga mitigation strategies may need uh, reappraisal. Net retention levels may require to be readdressed in order to protect the, uh, the, uh, the solvency. Um, something which hasn't really been clarified yet, and uh, Desmond alluded to that, is this question of fit and proper. And uh, we are not certain yet uh, what the regulator is going to um, require in, in that regard, either at a management level or at the board level. The other issue which, um, too, has not really been clarified at this stage is the issue of proportionality and what the implications are for companies. The way I read it and with my interaction with the FSB, um, they're, they're taking a very um, firm view on compliance uh, with the regulations uh, with SAM, with uh, Board Notice 158. So, so how companies will approach this um, is not entirely clear at this stage, but it is something I think which is going to need to be uh, looked at because a number of smaller companies are going to find it very difficult to comply with uh, SAM. Uh, another challenge which we are finding uh, is that certain, um, certain returns which the regulator requires um, are, are very onerous, they're very, very time-consuming, and at a technical level they certainly do require actuarial assistance, so I'm, I'm sure you're going to be very happy to hear that. Um, this is particularly so with regard to certain technical provisions and, of course, the catastrophe modeling exercises for stress testing under ORSA. Um, the reg regularity of assuring compliance is something 
which I don't think it's altogether clear at the moment. Um, we've been advised that it's not a continuous or dynamic model that is required, although that is what uh, the regulator effectively says, is that you should be able to be assured, management should be able to be assured at all relevant times that it is actually complying with SAM. Um, but on a practical basis, perhaps this will only need to be done uh, once a year. But certainly, if there's a significant change in business of one form or another, then you know, it, is, it is advised. Uh, it should be advised to carry out a, a, probably an also exercise. The other area which um, I think is going to be quite a challenge is that of internal audit. Now, if one goes through Board Notice 158, the internal audit function is required to provide assurance uh, that, that the, um, the risk approaches, whether it's concentration risk or market risk or interest rate risk management or currency risk rate management or whatever, you know, what aspect of risk it is, the internal auditors have to provide that assurance. And of course, the background uh, of an internal auditor is really an accounting one, having a look at financial controls and uh, uh, internal control policies and procedures. So, so there seems to me to be a, a disconnect there between what their uh, professional competency is and what the requirements are. So I'm not certain how organizations are going to approach this, but for, certainly for smaller ones, it's, it's going to be quite a, an issue. And another issue is that if you outsource this function, say to a KPMG or a Deloitte, um, you, again, Board Notice 158 requires that you get another assurance provider to order that assurance provider and make sure they're doing their job properly. So that could be quite a challenge too. Um, yeah, and then another practical problem actually doing, <clears throat> doing the also exercises is that of data. Um, you know, for catastrophe modeling exercises, postal codes are required and it's quite difficult to, to, to get these so that you can actually determine where the sums, uh, values at risk are located and, and you can do a, a, a proper catastrophe modeling exercise. And this is something that's required for the parallel run. So, so I think this is an industry challenge at the moment. And as I've said, but would like to just repeat, um, Board Notice 158, which was only recently released in final form and, and uh, well, not promulgated, it's not law, it's, it's a, reg, a regulation, uh, but it was effective from the 1st of April, and it, 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 it almost dictates um, how uh, an insurance company needs to be run. And uh, this has required a number of policies have to be developed, and of course those policies then have to be complied with. So, so for those um, companies that haven't really got to grips yet with the board notice 158, I think there are going to be a number of challenges in that, uh, in that notice. And that really covers it. Yeah, no, th thanks, David. There was a, it's a very comprehensive list, I think, of some clearly practical examples that you have faced working for, for small companies, which I know I, I share some of those things with you also working for a small company. Okay, I'm going to move on to, to question three, which is what combination of skills on a board has been the most effective, in your opinion, and what can actuaries learn from other professions in implementation of SAM? 
And since I'll have no accountant bashing in my session, I'm going to ask her just to lead us off on that one. So let me say that I think the, the characteristics of a good board member, my, um, my experience is not based on their profession or their background, but it's more, is, are they inquisitive? Are they prepared to ask obvious, the obvious question? And, and I think often we sit in boards and I, I can definitely see there's a divide. So when the also is being discussed, everybody looks towards the actual board member. And when there's an IFRS matter, everybody looks towards the accountant. I don't feel that way. So I, I would say it is somebody that's prepared to apply themselves to self-study, but be prepared to ask the question that sometimes you can see it's hanging in the air, but nobody's asking it, because is that the right thing to do at the moment? So, um, yeah, I, I, I really think the, the best boards that I've seen operate on SAM are the ones that encourage an interplay from all members and not try and divide um, and, and allocate specific responsibilities to specific board members. Um, can I just um, ask sort of one follow-up thing? So what, have you seen examples of where actuaries really can learn from the non-actuaries on the boards? Or have you seen actuaries doing things which you, which you think, oh, I really think they should have thought a bit harder about that? No, we've got thick skin, so we're no, no, looking no, no, for honest you know, feedback. I, I, I sometimes would say, I, who prepares the, the agenda for audit risk and board meetings? It's not necessarily the actual fraternity. I would encourage the actual fraternity to be involved in some of that. Fairly recent, I attended a board meeting where item number two on the agenda was to discuss the dividend that would be declared. Number eight was the ORSA. Now, how could you make the first decision about what is a proper and appropriate dividend to declare, and then much later, when, when everybody's punch drunk, have a quick rollover and say, let's have a quick chat about the ORSA. So I, I do think um, I want to encourage everybody to be involved in setting their board agendas to be functional and, and, and not compartmentalize certain things, make sure that um, the actuaries are involved throughout. Okay, and then um, I mean Desmond and Conrad, on, on the same question, I mean as actuaries, what have you experienced or what do you feel that actuaries could learn from the non-actuaries on, on boards? Uh, not a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's not quite no, a constant no, bashing, but no, it, is, no, it is arrogance, though, which will not be tolerated either. Can I, uh, just generally, as far as the, the skills required on a board um, are concerned, organizations are becoming far more complex, and, and I speak particularly uh, larger, the larger companies are, are really, the complexity is, is, um, is quite challenging. And a lot of the technical work in, in, in the boards is done at committee levels. Now, for example, at Sunlam, we've got six committees. We've got an audit committee, we've got a risk committee, we've got a nominations committee, an HR committee, something called the policy or customer interest committee, and then we have our uh, social ethics and sustainability committee. You have to make sure that you have the right people on the board to populate those committees in a way that they can deal with very often very technical and, and complex situations. We, we're very fortunate we've got 
people like that. And, and just as a matter of um, an example, our sustainability uh, or social ethical sustainability is chaired by Vali Musa. Vali Musa happens to be the chairman of the WWF in South Africa. So he's somebody who is, is extremely well qualified to, to chair that committee. So I think in looking at, at, at the structure of a board and the skills and, and experience needed there, in, in the case of the larger organizations, I think you have to go one step lower, look at where the, a lot of the work is, is being done and what do you need to populate uh, those committees. Uh, um, as far as your second question, what can we learn from other professions? Um, yeah, not a lot. <laughs> I, I can see David looking with a, a dreamy look in his eye, wishing he also had six committees to, to, uh, to, to look to. Uh, Conrad, any other comments about what we can learn from non-actuaries? Yeah, as an actuary, I'll beg to differ with, with Desmond. Um, I, think, I think very valuable on the boards that, that I've been exposed to is what Gerda said, the diversity of, of skills, uh, background and experience. I mean, I've always found that extremely valuable if somebody gets up and asks what I would call the really stupid question, which typically requires a very intelligent answer. And I think um, for us as actuaries, I think we can learn a lot from, from other people in being brave enough and bold enough to ask the stupid questions. Um, the kind of uh, people that I've really enjoyed, particularly within the context of SAM, was uh, people, for example, engineers. Okay, I don't have that exposure on the life insurance companies, but in the short-term companies that I serve, there are engineering people there, quantity surveyors that have a lot of experience on operational risk management. And I think that's an area where I've learned a lot from, from those professions in terms of how do we look at operational risk and how do we value it, how do, how do we assess it. Uh, I also have the fortunate uh, situation that I share, share boards with uh, bankers who've got, gone through a similar experience in Basel II. And yeah, we've learned a lot from each other, I think, in terms of the implementation of SAM. Yes, sure. Maybe after my passionate plea that everybody shouldn't be expected to understand, I, I want to add to that in, in response to these two questions with an accounting example, now that we're not doing accounting bashing, but we're also not being entirely friendly. So I'll, um, I'll say that in, in Australia, there's been a case called the Centra case, which basically in, in simple terms said that as a board member you're not allowed to blindly rely on the audit committee. So in that instance all board members were held liable for a mistake in the financial statements because they said that that mistake was of such nature that as a normal board member you could have been expected to notice it. And I think we have to look at that when we look at SAM and say the same must apply, that although we look to our risk committee and we look to our actuaries on the board, to cover the entity against that risk, that we do have to accept responsibility to apply our mind as board members and, and use what we have in our arsenal, whether it is as a quantity surveyor, and, and, and de protect the organization that we, we represent against that risk. Okay. I'm going to hand back to, to Conrad again. Uh, we've got a, a couple of actuarial questions here. So, I mean, how would you like to see the actuarial advisors to the board discuss some of the new actuarial ideas? So have you seen good ways or bad ways that actuarial advisors have presented themselves to boards? Um, again, I would, like David, I will talk to the boards that I've been exposed to. And I must say, on the life insurance side, I'm very fortunate that uh, 
if I look around the table, we probably, with the advisors and with the executives, have about 50% in the one company and 70% of the people around the table are actuaries. So I would say for the others, and I think I'm really talking for the others now, um, the, the non-actuaries on the boards, I think it's very important to keep things simple, uh, to really make sure that you carry everybody with you in terms of the transition from uh, the old regime to the, to the same regime. And we've had a couple of cases, and I won't go into the detail, but where you looked at, for example, a risk, risk transfer solution before um, the uh, implementation of SAM and one after. And intuitively, they just didn't make sense. You know? And we really battled around the room as actuaries to bring it across. Why doesn't it make sense? And I think really what we all as actuaries need to learn is to communicate. I mean, I, I recall the situation in that time where one of the non-actuaries said, Actuarial science is like voodoo magic, you know, and I think we really have to be conscious that, that, that we don't allow that to stand in the room. That we actually have to go back to do proper illustrations, proper reconciliations, to really to get everybody across the line. So yeah, go, go to basics, um, use illustrations. I mean, explain the why of an outcome rather than the what of an outcome. In other words, why does uh, the, the SAM result look like this, not this is what it looks like. Um, I think also what really helps is if the advisors and the executives from the companies understand the background of each individual board member um, and, and understand the person and try to talk to their language, try, try to talk to everything in terms of what they will know. And again, for example, use the example of the bankers. If you talk, if you link Sam back to Basel II, you really get and you try and sort of, uh, you know, show the, the similarities you immediately have a lot of the board members much more with you um, as far as that is concerned. And I think, you know, to come back to the earlier point about learning from pro other professions, I mean, I've learned a lot from lawyers who really try to have the ability to make a very complex issue, and I must admit, not all lawyers, but the lawyers that I've been exposed to, a very complex issue actually quite simple in its essence, and I think we need to, as actuaries, try to, to learn from that. And maybe, I mean, just to the three accountants on the panel, are there any issues that you feel actuaries just befuddle you with or that you've had particular issues trying to explain or have been badly explained to you? No, I don't think they try and befuddle us, but I'd, I do think it's important to be able to do a reconciliation for board members. Um, they look at their IFRS balance sheet um, reserves uh, and then you look at the ORSA, uh, not the ORSA, the SCR ratio, which might be 1.5 or thereabouts, and then you look at your ORSA ratio, which might hopefully be one or slightly above, and uh, you don't really understand uh, how, those, how those changes have come about. And so it would be useful to have a reconciliation as to how those capital charges have arisen and, and whether it's the quality of the asset or whatever it might be. Um, yeah, because they are human resource people, as, as Desmond has said, there, is, there are a variety of backgrounds sitting on the board, and, uh, and they just sit there not wanting to say anything because they feel they ought to know. And Nina and Curtis, anything to add on that one? Maybe a bit like David. There's nothing I'd say um, you, over the years you've seen that been misrepresented. I think that's more an opportunity, and I was listening beforehand the discussion on the embedded value and the reference to I4S. So we are on the brink 
soon of having our first full phase two. Um, and that must add an opportunity to continue with the momentum of SAM into IFRS 4 Phase 2 and finding the touch points quite early and illustrating that to the board and say, here we are relying on the work that we've done for SAM, here we've got to do new work. I think that board members are trying to grapple with, are these two separate projects or can you, can you continue with some of the work that you've done in SAM? And, and if the actuarial fraternity can, can help show that link, I think that will be very, very valuable. Okay, and one more question before we open up to the floor. So this is hopefully a fairly short one, and I'm going to ask Desmond as, a, as an ex-past president of various associations. So, Desmond, do you think that there are things that we should be doing as an actual profession to improve the general understanding of actual concepts introduced by Sam? Uh, Paul B., before I get there, can I just make a comment and talking about people asking the silly questions and so on? I, I think it's important how a board is being managed. And, and I, I, the chairman, in my view, can't just sit there and direct the traffic. Uh, you, you get to know your board members and, and you get to know those who will have interesting ideas on particular topics. And, and I think it's incumbent on the chairman to, and it also keeps everybody on their toes, uh, to say, you know, now, what, if, what have you got to say about this? Um, and, and in that way, you can extract as the person that's, that's leading the meeting, you can extract a lot of information that you otherwise um, would not pick up. Um, Paul, I think the profession is doing a, a, an excellent job. I'm not involved in the mainstream of the profession here in, in South Africa uh, to any uh, great extent, but I think individually actuaries within their own environments are doing an excellent job in, in educating uh, their companies and, and, and their boards. Uh, you know, that very definitely happens in, in the case at, at Sunlam. Gert, uh, who was sitting over here just now, plays a, a, a key role in that, and Andre Zierman and at RGA, Stuart Land. So I, I think individually they're doing um, uh, an, an excellent job. And I do think the profession, too, is, is doing a, 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 an excellent job. It's, it's a limited audience. I mean, not everybody out there is really interested in what SAM is all about. Um, as a matter of fact, I think there are very few that uh, are really interested. Um, but I get the impression, uh, and uh, you know, there are representatives from the FSB here. Ian, I, you know, you would be able to say uh, better than I could, but I think ASA has been very involved in perhaps not educating the FSB, but engaging uh, with the FSB uh, to make sure you don't do anything silly. Uh, uh, but uh, I, I really believe the, the uh, ASA is doing an excellent job. And just a, a, an aside comment on that. Um, I've had the opportunity, as Paul has said, to be um, involved internationally with the actuarial profession as is Paul uh, as, as well, and, and really the, the South African profession is, is, is right out there in, in front. I, I believe we are, uh, of the associations around the world, uh, one of the most dynamic associations. Uh, we were sitting uh, last year in The Hague, and they have a, a so-called leaders' dinner uh, uh, every time they get together. And our profession accounts for less than 2% of all qualified actors around the world. 25% of the people sitting 
at, at that dinner were South Africans, which, which I think is, is a remarkable achievement. So you folk can all feel very proud of uh, being members of ASA. Paul, I think that. And as a matter of fact, I just want to say, some of my best friends are accountants, okay? <laughs> For those of you who are sitting behind Ian, which is all of you, he was smiling and nodding vigorously and giving the double thumbs up to Desmond's question. He is talking after tea, so he can refute that if he, if he wants to. Okay, so that, that's the end of our formal questions. But I really, we've got about 10 minutes. I'd like to open up to questions to the floor. So we've got five very eminent panelists here. So hopefully we will have some questions. One at the front here, fourth row from the front. Is there a microphone? So put your hand up, sorry, so they can see you from behind. There we go. You're going to get two microphones. Okay. Uh, thanks. Uh, just a question. Are boards asking in terms of how much this is costing uh, from an actual cost perspective as well as uh, opportunities going forward? Because I feel that uh, as a profession, we run the risk of SAM being something that boxes us in terms of uh, being you know, structurally uh, bound by SAM and you get an Uber or an Airbnb kind of business model creeping up and uh, overtaking the industry. So who would like to answer that? Conrad. Happy to kick off on this one. Um, certainly, yes. I've also, one of the companies that I serve on is a, is a young startup, rapidly growing insurance life insurance company. And they really have to ask the questions that David highlighted about resources and cost is a big issue and where do you, where do you actually apply your resources at the moment. But I think the, the big thing that we as a board have, have worked out is to say if we ultimately use SAM as a sound business, strategic business tool and really make sure that the, the managers at the coalface base their decisions on the feedback that SAM will, you know, through the board and through the executive give in terms of where capital should be applied and where capital should not be applied, we will get our returns over time. But that is going to be the real test. I mean, to come back to the first question, the challenge we see is to say, not can we deliver the reports every year, but can we actually get some returns out of everything we've invested in terms of SAM? Curtis? Nina mentioned a bit earlier that you know, the boards over the past two years have done a lot on education, and I, I think I can echo that. But the one thing I've spotted in the past two years is two years ago, SAM was seen as a project, and there was a project budget allocated to that. And people were comparing costs to that project budget. Increasingly, I'm not seeing a, a SAM budget, which people are saying, Conrad, that's your point, it's becoming business as usual. And I, I think yeah, it is, it's starting to get very difficult to, to say, this is a SAM cost, and this is cost just in running, running our business on a normal basis. So I, I think in two, three years' time, people will struggle to say what the cost of SAM would be. You could say there's a cost of regulation, but SAM will, will be involved, it will be pulled into the overall business model. Any other question at the front, chair, Gary? And then there's one at the back, third row from the back. Now, I'd be interested in the uh, panel members' views on whether SAM is going to make or is already making capital management within an insurer easier or more difficult. Gary, I, 
I am a strong believer that that is the case. And, and maybe it's more, and David referred to the smaller insurers, um, I understand the, the difficulty um, that they're experiencing in terms of resources and, and being able to allocate time to that. But it is change capital management specifically for the short-term insurers in South Africa, in my perspective, in a meaningful way. So I do think that it's, it's part of the way that business decisions increasingly are being made, um, and, and maybe more so in the short-term insurance industry than in the life insurance industry. But overall, I do believe that is the case. So okay, just to push you on that, you say it is being used to make decisions, but is it helping to make better decisions? I think would perhaps be what Gary was saying. I, um, I'll, I always say this, we have not had many failures um, in life insurers or insurers in South Africa. And you may say that is not purely a function of capital management. But, and, and, and it is more a qualitative comment than, than a quantitative comment. But I think if I look at the level of discussion at boards, I believe it is better than it was before. And part of that is driven by SAM and better capital modeling. Hi. Um, my question actually follows on from the previous one. Uh, when you say that SAM allows better capital management, do you mean by that that actually boards are taking into account risks in a better way? Uh, and do you think that this would be improved if more insurers were to move to an internal uh, model basis? I think probably at the moment not many insurers are because it's quite expensive. Do you think that should be cheaper and should be actually encouraged? Uh, and then uh, what is it about the SAM way of looking at things that it makes it better uh, for risk management or for capital allocation, etc.? I think that's quite a difficult question to, to answer. Um, I think SAM, and again, as I've said, with Board Notice 158, which actually um, sets out very, very clearly um, almost a benchmark uh, from a risk-based point of view as to how the insurance company, you know, ought to conduct its affairs. And, um, and certainly it may or may not be, it may not be <clears throat> um, factual that, that all of these things haven't been attended to by insurance companies in the past, uh, but certainly this will, will force that discipline and in doing so, uh, will we'll ensure that um, managements and boards um, address these issues and, and, and do take a more responsible approach, perhaps a more conservative approach uh, to, to running their companies. So, so I think from a risk-based point of view and policyholder protection point of view, um, as well as other beneficiaries, um, there's no doubt that the end result from their perspective is, is going to be beneficial. Um, it may be that, that shareholders um, are going to be um, prejudiced to an extent, particularly in the smaller insurance companies, because the impact of adding a few million rand, perhaps, you know, to their cost budget may be quite significant. Um, you know, but at the end of the day, I think this is an in industry protection measure that is being looked at. So, you know, those capital allocation decisions, the type of business that you're writing, your premium rating where you have an ability to, to address that, and all those things. 
I think people, businesses are going to have to look at that more carefully um, in the past. I don't know if that answers your question. I hope it does. We have gone um, slightly over time. So, I mean, I know all the panelists spent a lot of time preparing their answers. And so, do any of you have anything in 30 seconds that you would like to add that you haven't been given a chance? Okay, um, we have three non ASA members on the panel. Um, David is, is actually kindly going to do the Joburg session as well. So, on behalf of ASA, I'd like to give a gift to Nina and to Herdis. So. And then if you can also just thank the actors on the panel very much. Thank you as well. <laughs>